I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take these leftovers written between the pages and we take them back into the kitchen and we fry it up with a bit of blood and a bit of spit and we serve it right back to you and we say, if this isn't what you wanted, you can go to a different restaurant. That's literally what we say, actually. We're very much taking the fish that we ordered two weeks ago that is going to be absolutely putrid tomorrow and say, this is the special. Yeah, we're making it ceviche. And if you don't want that, we respect that and we get it. But this is the most densely populated restaurant city in the world. So just go to a different one. Mm -hmm. That's the podcast library. The universe of podcasting. (laughs) Ashley. Yes, Claire. Do you have anything to tell the people? We are on our way right now, next week, to Los Angeles and Phoenix. We missed you last week. We're so excited to be back and we're so excited to head to the West Coast. January 18th, we will be in Phoenix and January 19th, we will be in Los Angeles and we could not be more stoked out of our minds. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're also going to be at Moon Tower Comedy Festival in Austin in April. We are going to be at Just for Laughs in Vancouver, Vancouver in February. Man, there is stuff churning. You got to follow us on Instagram because that's the easiest way to find out where we'll be live. And we're going live all the time. You know, we call it tour, but really it's just a constant ad. Have you ever seen those sushi conveyor belts? That's our tour. So, you know what I mean? You got to plop a seat at the bar and the bar is Instagram. That's so true. Anyway, Claire, if you were to write a memoir, how would you project next year's chapter to hopefully be? Can you stop? No. (laughs) <laughs> You've done this two weeks in a row now I know, where but- I come prepared to speak and then you throw me a curveball and I kind of think it's fucked up. Okay. How would you describe last week's chapter? I had something sweet I wanted to say. Okay. Okay. You know what I'm, this week is about to me? What? And it's colored by our memoirist this week, Anthony Bourdain. It's about like loving the things you love. I love that. Reading this book, it was all talk and shop. It was all about like loving the shitty thing that is your life. <laughs> And that's like what stand-up is. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld has a bit that I watched him do one time about like how close things that suck and things that are great are. And I really do think like the worst things of the world are the highlights of your life. You look back and you go, it was so bad then. How great. (laughs) I know. When we think about open mic comedy and like the horrible putrid rooms. And when I say putrid, I mean literally there was like toxic mold sizzling out of the cracks. I loved those moments. (laughs) It doesn't get better than that. I was just Christmas shopping for people and I went to a board game store. Nobody is happier than the worker of a board game store. And I've experienced this in multiple countries, so I know it's like an international truth. But they fucking love board games. They're so excited for you to love a board game. They can't wait to explain all the board games to you. And I was just like, I love people who love things. And I felt excited by the board game people. I felt excited by Anthony Bourdain's book. I went to B&H. Have you ever been there in New York City? It's like a giant electronics cornucopia, a utopia. I don't know if the people who work there love it, but they have that kind of customer service I like that's like a zone man-to-man defense where they're just spread out everywhere and then they glom on the minute you ask for help. I just was like, I love options. I love things. I love love. That was what I was really excited about this week. And can I say a sad thing from the week? Yeah. I'm so worried we'll never see snow again. We are currently experiencing a mini flood. Yeah. And I am like, oh, this was supposed to be snow. I literally was like, wow, what if I have kids that never see snow, like locally? They think it's something you have to travel for. There's a possibility. I'm a bit nervous about the future. Sure. But highs and lows. But I love a board game (laughs) activist. Totally. Ashley, in four years, where do you think you'll be professionally? Right here, baby. (laughs) (laughs) She can't be stopped by a curveball. She's too on the money. She's too on her game. (laughs) Can I say something like corny, but I don't know if it's that corny. You're safe here. Okay. So this week, 
was a bit emotional. There was a lot going on. And the thing that I am most grateful for in my entire life are my friends and friendships. And I think that I always say that, that I always love hanging out with my friends. But I think that in my journey of dating and not dating, I'm always either dating or not dating, but like (laughs) keeping my eye on a swivel. Do you know what I mean? Like even when I delete the dating apps and I go out with my girlfriends, I still am like, well, what if someone hot is here? That It's still like in my mind as kind of an important thing. And I feel like even when I'm not dating, I'm not like focusing on my friendships wholeheartedly. I'm like, oh, I'm just not dating right now. And I don't think anything has to fill that space. But okay, so last night I was having dinner with some friends and we were playing this game. It was kind of like a truth or dare kind of game. And I got one that was very truthy. And it was like, when are you most happy? And I was like, oh, times like this when I'm just hanging out with my friends. And I was really drunk. And I was like, that's why I live in New York. I just want to hang out with my friends all the time. And it's why I'll probably die alone because I don't live in a city where dating is good, but I like hanging out with my friends all the time. And that's what I've chosen. (laughs) And they were like, that's so true. Why have one (laughs) husband when you could have 20 friends? Yes. But I was thinking today about the ways that like all of my favorite things in my life involve hanging out with my friends. And I was like, okay, this year needs to be the year of friendship in that I'm really not just having friends and hanging out with them, but like tending to friendships and like being there for people. I think sometimes I hang out with people a lot, but I don't always do a good job of like like being there, there, like catching little things and stuff like that. So I want to work on that. Oh, my God. I think you do a great job, but I guess I'm also like a bad judge of that for you because what we have is not just friendship. Yeah. It's something sick. (laughs) It's like a sickness. (laughs) You're my top best codependent. And then my like best friend, comma, dog is Bug, of course. We're like those sisters that like never get married and die in the house they were born in. And you're like, they never left that house. They're 92 years old. Surely they had somewhere to go. We're that emotionally, which is not great, but. I like it. I'm grateful for it. (laughs) But not a lot gets by either of us. But you know the people that you're not scheduled uh to see all the time that you're like, oh, if I reached out to them. And I always think about how I could reach out to those people, but we're doing it. Lean into the things that you love. Yeah. Hanging out. I literally just said that to somebody today. I have a friend who's kind of like rebalancing her life a bit and being like, oh, I like want to scale back and work a little bit. And I'm like, you can't even imagine how much fun we're having out in these streets. We're hanging out all the time. Hanging out with your friends is literally so fun. It's It's so fun. Anyway, my thing starting next year is because I was like, oh, this is my one week spot when I have those nights where I just don't really have anything going on, but I'm not that tired. I just decided to whatever. I say, invite someone to self-care. Invite someone over. Order some takeout. Watch a movie. You have friends. What did we even just talk about? Who knows? You and your corny ass syrup. We got stuck in it. Let's clean up and get into the kitchen. Put your torques on. Confidential. (laughs) Anthony Bourdain was born June 25th, 1956. He passed away at the age of 61 years old in 2018. He's actually from New Jersey, New York. He went to Dwight Englewood, which is a high school I know about because it's like a kind of fancy prep school in northern New Jersey by where I grew up. And you know who else went there of our memoirists? Who? Brooke Shields. Huh. Took me a minute to remember her last name. Because you shielded the memory? Yeah. So I think he was 46 when the book came out. And this book, I want to say, Kitchen Confidential, it's a book that a lot of people have recommended to us, especially my dad, most of all. And I was really excited to read it, and I'm really glad we did read it. It's actually been on our shelves. I mean, we've been considering this book. It's been in consideration since, like, our third book order ever. Like, we've had it for a bit. I feel like in society, his death was so tragic and sudden, and so many people were impacted by it, that I was always nervous about doing his book when I knew it was such, like, it felt like such a raw wound for so long. Yeah. 
it's interesting. I didn't realize how old this book was. It feels very. It feels almost contemporary until you really look at the way the restaurant industry has changed and you go, oh, this is old. I think that something very interesting about this book is it's not particularly autobiographical. Like it is about his personal experience, but I think you get a lot of who he is, but you don't really get like where he came from. And like, it's kind of interesting how much of his life I still have a lot of questions about after reading this book. Well, the irony of this book is that I would go, I wish it was a memoir. I have so many questions and I'm so interested and you seem like such an interesting person. I mean, you don't even find out till page 205 that he's six foot four. And I go, well, we should have started there. That's the most important thing about anyone. This book is also like surprisingly dense, but readable. I will say, I think it would be an incredible, amazing read if you weren't in a rush to read it the way we are. Yes. I did feel like it didn't have enough plot momentum to keep you really engaged where you're like, it's a page turner nonstop. I think for the first 150 pages, I felt like, oh, I could read this all night. And then they get very like one-off essay-ish almost when he starts delving into different characters in the industry. I will say, at the end, he gets into a listicle here or there. He also does the classic, I did a commencement speech, so just throw that in the book. <laughs> I think it's a great book, and I think if you read it at the beach on vacation, you would love it, and it, the pacing would be great. So it has an acknowledgments, a preface, and a note from the chef. And the preface was written years later. I think this was written in the 2006 edition of the book, so his life had changed dramatically from the version of his self that wrote the book. Another thing that's very interesting about this book is that he was not famous when he wrote it. Like, this is not a celebrity memoir in the way that, like, a celebrity got a book published. It's a celebrity memoir in that this memoir kind of made him a celebrity. I would compare it way more to Crying in H Mart, almost. Yes. Like, someone with enough connection to get a book deal, but, yeah. like, the book itself. I mean, that's something that's left out of this book because it's not a memoir about his life. And it seems like at the time of this book being published, he had already written a novel I that had two. done well. But he's also working 17 hours a day, seven days a week. So I'm like, when did you write that novel? I think we should start with the preface about how his life changed. This I found very interesting. He says, I was not and am not an advocate for change in the restaurant business. I like the business just the way it is. And this was the kickoff for me of how much this book reminded me of stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. I think that there is so much about stand-up comedy where you just like revel in like the horrors and the abuse. And then you're like, and nothing should change. Everyone needs to cut their teeth in that same way. Like, if you don't do it, then how will you get funny? I wanted my memoir slash rant to reflect the somewhat claustrophobic worldview of a professional cook. The adversarial way we cooks tend to look at the civilians who fill our dining rooms. Like, it is so – the way that, like, non-comedians – I'm going to stop comparing it to comedy after no, this. No, but it, I've, I've had that exact thing. Comedians will do this thing where they call non-comedians civilians, which always – got on my nerves personally because I'm like we're this not isn't in war <laughs> we're like choosing to sit here and talk amongst ourselves and it's the same thing for chefs so I'm like okay you're not like heart surgeons on the front line of the Ukraine <laughs> and it's like yeah people need food but they don't need gourmet food listen I chucked my 20s in a toilet for stand-up comedy like I love it I've dedicated a huge portion of but my life to it there is a self-important idea he talks about his love affair with the microculture and that's what really endeared me to this book because I relate to that so hard about just having this insane little world where you all have the same experiences and talk the same language. You're so self-important that you consider the people who are not part of that world civilians. Like we have gone to battle. We have, what, stayed up late writing jokes and imagine. doing drugs with our friends. They couldn't even imagine what our life is like. They're what, <laughs> going to a desk? And I'm like, okay, yeah, some of us are also going to a desk. Yeah. But he says at the end of the day, so this book has obviously changed his life. It's made him a celebrity. He feels like such a hack for making more money writing books than he does in the kitchen. But he feels grateful that the fame that has been brought to him 
it seems like all of the kitchen people love him and accept him and are like, you wrote my life and how universal the kitchen experience is, be it the U.S., Boston, California, Louisiana, or they're all the way to Japan. And he's like, I've gotten a lot of free drinks and a lot of free appetizers. And I get a lot of pride from the people who say, like, that's my life. You wrote it into your book. And he's like, I still, I'm embarrassed that my hands are getting soft. I'm one of them. That's where my life is first and foremost. Yeah. He talks about the restaurant business and he says it's perhaps the last meritocracy where what we do is all that matters, which is something I would definitively contest. But I like how seriously he takes it. Like, I think that people say that about comedy all the time. They say it's a meritocracy. And I'm like, well, that's just like obviously not true. But also that sense that it's like, you're so sure that your little micro world is the most important, is like the last meritocracy on earth. And I'm like, I don't know. That's just because they're the only people you're talking to. Yeah. It's because you don't know anybody else. <laughs> you're like, you can't imagine. What we're doing is so different than other people. We take ourselves very seriously. Especially because it's a job where you spend every waking. I mean, he's there from 6 a.m. until... 1 a.m. And so it's literally the only people he knows are people in the restaurant industry. And I feel like it's like that with comedy where like I would get off work and I would be in comedy spaces from 6 p.m. until 1 a.m., which I get is a lot less time, but it doesn't like pay. So it was different. (laughs) But like you think that it's the only important thing and like you spend every waking moment, like every social hour is talking to comedians and you're like, we're changing the world. I was just with young comedians recently and I was just like, whoa, I remember when I thought like the 19 people I saw every week were the most important people on the planet. (laughs) It's like, oy vey. (laughs) It's so crazy now to be in rooms with people who I was like petrified of to my bones. Like I was just like, oh my God, I could never speak to that person. They've cut their teeth. They've like gotten these credits. They've done these things that I could never even imagine. Like maybe when I'm grown up, I can be like them. And I was like, oh my God, I was like three years younger than them. And I like, I'm still doing comedy and they're not. (laughs) So this book is for the cooks and I do feel that. Yeah, it is. A note from the chef. Don't get me wrong, I love the restaurant business. Hell, I'm still in the restaurant business. A lifetime classically trained chef who an hour from now will probably be roasting bones from a demi-glaze and butchering beef tenderloins in a cellar prep kitchen on Lower Park Avenue. So he's like, listen, I'm not saying all this because I'm trying to like change things. I'm just telling you life because I think it needs to be put down on paper and I want the people who have lived it to recognize themselves. I want the professionals who read this to enjoy it for what it is, a straight look at the life many of us have lived and breathed for most of our days and nights to the exclusion of normal social interaction. I want the readers to get a glimpse of the true joys of making really great food at a professional level. I'd like them to understand what it feels like to attain the child's dream of running one's own pirate crew, what it feels like, looks like, and smells like in the chatter and hiss of a big city restaurant kitchen. And I'd like to convey as best I can the strange delights of the language patois and death's head sense of humor found on the front lines. I'd like civilians who read this to get a sense at least that this life, in spite of everything, can be fun. And he's like, listen, there's going to be some horror stories, but I'm simply not going to deceive anybody about the life I've seen it. Can I say, it does not sound fun. No. Like, I get how it sounds captivating and all-consuming, and how if you got a taste of it, you would kind of just dive further into it. I get the way it would swallow you, but it did not sound fun. (laughs) No. Do you think you could get, like, Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah. Where when your whole world is other people who are all going for the same goal, you forget that that goal is like a thing you made up in your head. <laughs> Late night. <laughs> <laughs> the book is divvied up into first course, second course, third course, dessert, coffee and a cigarette, and then afterward. So first course is about the beginning of his life. And it's much more memory than the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. I would have liked the back half of the book, which looks more at the New York City and international food scenes, if he had used real names. Yes. We'll get there when we get there. But this first part was very fun. He talks about his first memory of food, 
They were on a family vacation to Europe on the Queen Mary in the cabin class dining room. And he gets a vichyssoise. Yeah. So his dad is French. And so his family was going over to France to, you know, meet his dad's family. They were taking the Queen Mary. He never addresses it head on, but he acknowledges quite often his privilege. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, oh, you were like a for real rich kid because they were taking like a three month long vacation in Europe. Yeah. It reminds me of the parent trap. Yeah. Because there's also a boat in that. Yeah. They took a boat from America to Europe and they had vichyssoise. Okay. They take this trip to Europe, and on the boat over, he tries vichyssoise, which I guess is like a cold soup kind of sitch, like a gazpacho-y type food. Mm-hmm. And it kind of blew his mind. And then the second biggest food memory is one where he didn't even get the food. But all throughout Europe, he and his brother were just like kind of bitches the whole time. And he's like, no. I mean, it is hard when you're trying to have like a lovely European vacation and you have these grumpy kids. Kids do be grumpy in Europe, though. You cannot take an American <laughs> child to Europe. Like, Europe is an amazing haven for adults, for children. The cars are small. The TVs are small. Yeah. Like, there's no absolute luxuries. We love an Aunt Jemima pancake. (laughs) So he and his brother are getting brought along to these very fancy meals with his parents. And then one day, his parents get out to this really fancy restaurant. He said he could feel the anticipation. His parents had gotten this reservation ages ago. And they were like, okay, and you guys aren't coming. You'll sit in the car and we're going to go eat this meal that we're excited about. And that is when he realized food could be so important to someone because he's like, well, if they won't take us to eat with them, what's so fucking special about this meal? And in order to prove that he was worthy of fancy food, he developed this self-proclaimed need to try anything forever. So now if you put anything in front of him, he would just eat it. Anything weird, anything that like normally a kid would be like, that is squirmy and I won't touch it. He would touch it first. I decided then and there to outdo my foodie parents. At the same time, I could gross out my still uninitiated little brother. I'd show them who the gourmet was. Brains, stinky, runny cheeses that smelled like a dead man's feet, horse meat, sweetbreads, bring it on. Whatever had the most shock value became my meal of choice. For the rest of that summer and the summers that followed, I ate everything. So then his first opportunity to try everything came when they get this opportunity to go out with a clam fisherman. Oyster fisherman. An oyster fisherman. And... They like go out to this area and then you wait until the tide goes down and then you're just like on the ground and you scoop up all the oysters and then you go back. And so they had some snacks out there, but it wasn't enough snacks and the tide was still going down. And so then he was like, I'm so hungry. What do I do? And the oyster fisherman was like, slurp this oyster. And he was like, okay. And he did. And it was so good. His mind exploded. Even to this day, he, well, I guess not to this day, to the time of writing this book, loves a fresh oyster. It tasted of seawater, of brine and flesh, and somehow of the future. Everything was different now, everything. I not only survived, I'd enjoyed. This, I knew, was the magic of which I had only now been dimly and spitefully aware. I was hooked. My parents shudder, my little brother's expression of unrestrained revulsion and amazement only reinforced the sense that I had, somehow, become a man. Food had power. It could inspire, astonish, shock, excite, delight, and impress. It had the power to please me and others. This was valuable information. I still associate the taste of oysters with those heady, wonderful days of illicit afternoon buzzes. I had as yet no plans to cook professionally, but I frequently look back at my life searching for the fork in the road, trying to figure out where exactly I went bad and became a thrill-seeking, pleasure-hungry, sensualist, always looking to shock, amuse, terrify, and manipulate, seeking to fill that empty spot in my soul with something new. And I think it was Monsieur St. George's fault. But of course, it was me all along. Whose fault do you think it might have been? Monsieur St. Jur. <laughs> How would you say that? I like that. Say it. I can't because I'm sick. Say it. 
I actually don't know how to say monsieur. It's a really hard word. Monsieur? Then I'd say saint jour. Monsieur saint jour. Saint jour. Saint jour. Sure. I will say this book had so many words I had never heard before. And I thought I had been around restaurants and I thought I had seen French. There was so many food words where I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I don't know about any foods, so. I know, I can only imagine what kind of garbled gook this was for you. <laughs> Whether you are braving the cold or dealing with crowds, grocery shopping this time of year is a nightmare. So the best thing to do is stay at home and let Hungry Root handle it. With Hungry Root, you can kickstart a week of healthy eating and get your groceries delivered right to your door. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality food delivered right to your door. They have healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. All you have to do is take a fun, short quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know you, your goals, and how you like to eat. They'll ask what flavors you like, what kitchen appliances you use, and more. And then they keep your needs and preferences top of mind, building your cart and your week of meal preparation. Hungry Root will recommend recipes and groceries based on your taste. You can take their suggestions or choose anything you want. They have fresh produce, high-quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks and sweets, and so much more. This is just the perfect month to get started with Hungry Root because let me tell you what, everyone has aspirations of being better at meal prep and better at, you know, just eating healthy in the new year. But all of a sudden, things start stacking up. Like January starts easy and then you're back to work and you're back to life and everything is rising up against you. But with Hungry Root, your meal prep shows up right at your door. It takes so much of the stress out of preparing healthy and full and delicious meals at home. Hungry Root goes beyond your weekly grocery haul with thousands of easy recipes that actually put your groceries to good use before they get forgotten in the back of your fridge. The best part of Hungry Root is that they follow a simple standard. It's got to taste good, be quick to make, and contain whole, trusted ingredients. Spend less time meal planning, shopping, and cooking, and more time enjoying healthy food that you actually love with Hungry Root. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Celebrity Memoir Book Club listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com worm to get 40% off your first delivery and free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. In 1973, unhappily in love, I graduated high school a year early so I could chase the object of my desire to Vassar. Okay, I would like to say something here. I wanted to say something too, so you start. Okay, so this unhappily in love chased a girl to Vassar. I thought that this was the end of that. I was like, oh, he was unhappily in love, chased a girl to college, things went south, he pursued cooking. I, I didn't even know he was married. And then later in the book, he talks about being my wife, and I looked up who his wife was. It was the girl he chased to Vassar. Yeah, well, later in this book, he goes, we had been together since high school. And I was like, what? So something interesting about this book is it's all about the drug use, the sex, the like rampant orgies that everybody else is having. I notice he never mentions the sex he's having or any relationships. Except for towards the end when he talks about waitresses he's banged. There's like one little aside where he says to the waitresses that I've fucked like, sorry, it didn't work out or maybe I'm not. Interesting, because he seems to have had a girlfriend slash wife this whole time. Yes, I agree that that's interesting. I also think this really shows how privileged he was. I don't want to knock, but he has this kind of attitude of, ah, rock and roll, drink, eat, fuck, who cares? It's all going to work out. And I am like, I don't know. You're also somebody who failed out of high school and still got to go to Vassar and like failed out of Vassar. I do think it was a little bit easier for you to take all these risks and have 10 years of dicking around doing heroin than it might be for most people. I also wonder if times were just different. Yeah, like anybody could go to Vassar, especially if you were a boy, they would take you. 
Kind of. I also wonder if just like there was more dicking around. I do think even back then that if you were somebody like he goes on to work with a lot of undocumented people. I think if those people had been caught doing heroin, dicking around, yeah, they yeah, wouldn't yeah, yeah. get to go take of course. 17 more chances. Of course, of course. Like amongst the people he spends most of his time with, he is immensely privileged. Yeah, it's like a ton of safety nets. Yes. Anyway. I spent most of my waking hours drinking, smoking pot, scheming, and doing my best to amuse, outrage, impress, and penetrate anyone silly enough to find me entertaining. I was, to be frank, a spoiled, miserable, narcissistic, self-destructive, and thoughtless young lout, badly in need of a good ass-kicking. This is when he should have mentioned being 6'4". Rudderless and unhappy, I went in with some friends at a summer share in Provincetown, Cape Cod. It was what my friends were doing, and that was enough for me. So then his friends all have jobs and he's like, oh my God, jobs, that's so weird. And they're like, yeah, you're supposed to pay rent here too. And he was like, oh, fuck. And I think for, he goes away with not for a while and then finally they're like, enough. Yeah, so then he gets a he job. He so fucking charming. I mean, obviously he's so charming. This book is charming. I'm charmed. I look at him and I think I'd bang him. Obviously he was like a huge hit on TV, but I'm just like, God, to have known him at 18, being a little dickwad, I cannot fathom the way I would have swallowed him up. <laughs> like, like an oyster. <laughs> Ew. Monsters Angel. <laughs> okay. So then his friends are like, get a fucking job. So then one of his friends who works in a restaurant, I guess a dishwasher just hadn't showed up. And since it was a very competitive dishwashing market, they get him in. He is fascinated by restaurant culture, by the kitchen, by the whole vibe back there. And he starts working in the restaurant. He starts working his way up. He ends his summer on the boiler, which is like kind of a big deal. So he explains that in the back end of the kitchen, and I have to say, as someone who was a waitress for 10 years, I guess I just never went back there. Really? Yeah. I mean, I kind of, like, you go, you get a snack, but I always felt like if I stayed too long, I'd be sexually assaulted, to be honest. I worked at a cafe one time where there was just one waitress, one line cook. His name was Zeke. He taught me a lot about life. But besides that, yeah. I, was, I was front of house, baby. I was at the door pouring water. Anyway, for those of you who don't know, for those of you like me who stayed in front of the house or if for those of you who have never worked in a restaurant, suspicious. <laughs> suspicious. I've never heard of such a person, but okay. The way it works is there's a chef who makes the menu, but it's all being done by line cooks. And there's like a hierarchy. And you go in and you start in the dishwasher. And then there's like the salads. There's the food. There's the sautéing. There's basically someone who works every section of the kitchen. So there's someone who's on prep and salad things. And things are as prepared as possible so you can throw them together as easy as possible. But not everything can be pre-prepared. So he's there. He's working all weekend. And he loves these guys. They're all ex-cons. He's like, they have dirty mouths. They're fucking and sucking. They're doing drugs. They're tatted up. They're afraid of nothing. And I want to be one of them so goddamn bad. And then one day, there's a wedding party that comes to this restaurant in the Cape or wherever they are. And the bride comes back to the kitchen and like whispers something to the chef. And then the chef and the bride go back in the alley. And he peeks out into the alley and the chef is just hitting it from behind. Her wedding dress hiked up to her waist and he sees it and he goes, I want to be a chef. That's like a bad goal. <laughs> he, he had a girlfriend. Did they break up for a while? I don't know. She doesn't. I have to say the fact that she's almost never mentioned in this book. And if it is, it's always like, don't worry. Nancy still put up with my shit and had time to call me out. And I'm like, I know why you and Nancy got divorced. I actually can't believe you and Nancy ever got married. This is crazy. When? This whole book is about how he never once met his girlfriend and then suddenly he has a wife. And I was like, huh? He hates Emeril. Well, in the afterward, he's like, sorry, I was such a bitch to Emeril. He actually has worked in a real kitchen. But throughout this book, Emeril Lagasse is a real punchline to him. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> that got you? 
it just like came kind of quick. I don't want you to think that everything up to this point was about fornication, free booze, and ready access to drugs. I should recall for you the delights of Portuguese squid stew, of well-fleet oysters on the half shell, of New England clam chowder, of greasy, wonderful, fire-red chorizo sausages, kale soup, and a night when the striped bass jump right out of the water and onto Cape Cod's dinner tables. Here's, can I make a confession right here on the podcast? Yeah. When things are spelled B-A-S-S, I'm not ever sure how to pronounce that. Bass. Or bass. So he's enthralled with the concept of cooking. He is obsessed with these people with their fucked up, cut up, burnt up hands. There's a hierarchy of restaurants in Provincetown. There's only one that's considered really intense. And it's so funny. This made me think of Vanderpump Rules, you know, in the old show where Stassi Shorter would be like, everybody in Los Angeles just wants to be a waiter. And every waiter just wants to work at Sir. <laughs> I was like, huh? Is that what's a flock in the hotties? Like, I want to go to Los Angeles to be a waiter professionally. <laughs> so there was a, a restaurant that was like the hotshot restaurant called Mario's. And then the second summer that he goes back to P-Town, his restaurant has been bought by Mario's. So he has to go back in and like re-interview for his job. And it, the summer before, he'd worked his way up to the boiler. But he interviews at Mario's and they're like, hey, you're no boiler man. So he gets knocked back down a couple pegs and he's trying to impress these guys so hard and they just make fun of him constantly because he doesn't have the finesse so, like they no, do. No, but he deserves to get bullied to death because he touches something and gets a little burn on his little hand. And he said, does anyone have a Band-Aid and perhaps some burn cream? And they said, shut the fuck up. And this guy that he calls Tyrone, but I actually think his name is James, he says later, is like this giant dude and he looks at him and he puts his hands up to... Anthony and his hands are just rife with blisters and burns and scars and scabs and cuts. And he claims he grabs something from the oven with his bare hands and puts it up on the stove and like looks at Anthony Bourdain and is like, you fucking bitch. And then everybody laughs in Anthony's face. And he right then and there decides I'm going to go to culinary school and come back and show these losers. He is very motivated by spite. And I love that about him. But also Provincetown aside from the things you've probably heard, is also like a Portuguese fisherman's town. It sounds like nobody ate well in the 70s. Like yeah. no American, you might have been like a first-gen immigrant, you might have been an immigrant, and you might have been eating well by accident because you came here from another country. But if you were primarily an American culture person, you were eating like mostly, I think, canned meat. Canned meat, and then at best, like country club food. He talks a lot about ham with a pineapple on top. Like I think the food in this country... <laughs> was fucking asshole. Like food that I would just be like, this is at the worst wedding. Do you know what you I mean? You know, when you see those like 70s images of like gelatin concoctions, like that's what he was making. It's a lot of like, this is a salad with mayonnaise and Cool Whip. And you're like, oh, interesting. <laughs> but here he met a couple of people who really loved the fish. And it's so interesting to hear about like trendy foods, about how back in the day, nobody would eat certain things that are now so hot to trot. And these people loved clams. They loved mussels. They loved oysters. And they understood how to put them in stew and cook them with chorizo. And it was here there was a couple important people on this island that really showed him, like, the beauty of what food can do and what it can be and how delicious fresh ingredients can be. Nobody in America pre-1994, I think, had ever heard of, like, a fresh ingredient. He talks about getting this fish that they caught and then he went home and, like, cooked it with just, like, lemon and pepper, I think. And butter. Lemon and butter, I think. Yeah. And he was like, just those three ingredients made the most delicious thing I'd ever had in my life. I ate it with my hands and I was like high off protein. And I believe it. But that's Me too. Also, 
It's also because I'm like a food elitist where I'm like, well, where was it picked? I am always shocked, I think, because I'm from Jersey, which gets shit on, but it is, in fact, the Garden State. I'm shocked how many people go so long in their life without a fresh tomato. I went a long time without a fresh tomato. I know. We were just talking about it. And like a fresh Jersey tomato with, I'm sorry. but You can't say it like that. A fresh Jersey tomato. (laughs) A fresh Jersey tomato down at the shore and you're never going to believe who was there. It was Snooky. You laugh, but you should be so lucky to have a delicacy. What are you fucking eating in 1999 Chicago? I had a Red Bull in one hand. I had a fresh tomato in the other hand. A bottle of Ma's at my fingertips. No. Here's what I'm going to say about mozzarella. If you're listening from middle America and real food hasn't hit you yet, it should be like sopping wet. (laughs) Real mozzarella should have been made that morning and like sitting in its own juices. I mean, okay. Take just like a fresh tomato in the height of the summer, a little bit of mozzarella, No, it's really good. Yeah, it's going to change your fucking life. (laughs) A true caprese salad is one of the great joys of being alive. I agree. It's how you know it's summertime. But what I was saying is nobody in America had ever heard of any of these words. Yes. (laughs) They knew about putting ketchup on a hot dog and that's it. You don't put ketchup on a hot dog? Oh, Miss Chicago over here. (laughs) We've all got our culinary specialties. (laughs) She's making fun of me. Okay, bears lover. Why don't you say some Midwestern nonsense? So he's really obsessed with getting in with the Mario crew. So he drops out of Vassar or flunks out of Vassar. T.B. fucking D. And he goes to the Culinary Institute of America, the CIA. And apparently it's hard to get in, but he's like, I don't know. I like knew someone who knew someone and they like floated my resume to the top. And then I just got in in two weeks. And I was like, ooh, Nepo baby. Yeah, I really want to study this book about likability and what it is that he has besides a dick that makes him so much more likable than women. I know. Because, <laughs> like, I don't know if maybe back in 2000, because people weren't so mad about shit like this, you could just say it and it was true and move on. And now it's, like, so either defensive or, or overly apologetic. But just to be like, yeah, there was a two-year wedding list, but I had a friend whose friend owned a restaurant, so I got to go the next week after failing out of high school and then failing out of Vassar. I don't know what it is because he's also trying so hard to seem like rock and roll and cool. He's like, I was older than most of my classmates. I'd worked in the industry and I'd had sex with a woman. And I'm like, okay, but I love you. I am so confused. He works at like 15 restaurants before he gets his first official chefing job. And he's like, so there I was, 22. And I'm like, where has the time gone? I guess he graduated high school early. Yes. And Okay, so I'm adding it up. So then he did two years at Vassar where he was working in restaurants in the summer. While he was working at the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America, he was going to New York every weekend working at restaurants. And then he had a full year working at a restaurant. And then he was 22. I guess. Anyway, he goes to Culinary Institute. And again, the food sounds like ass. No offense. Yeah. He was like, everyone was just like from a resort dining room background. And so like the food they were making was country club food. They had Oriental cookery, which was taught by a Chinese guy who was like great at teaching Chinese food but hated the Japanese because of what they had done to his country and was just like, sushi is stupid. It's just rice and fish. It's disgusting. (laughs) There was this one teacher that was known for like verbally abusing every single student for 10 full minutes. And when it was Anthony's turn to get his 10 minutes, he didn't crack and he didn't cry and he didn't even make a face. And so he's like, I could tell after that I was his favorite student. There are these little moments where you're like, okay, so you are kind of a prodigy and not just at getting yelled at, but about like understanding food just in your bones. I really think some people just get it and some people don't. But I still don't get what he gets. Do you know what I mean? 
I will say, as we got further in this book, it did become very clear to me that being like a incredible executive chef was not about cooking. Yeah. It's about so much. It's like about the leadership, the organization, like the understanding of people, the understanding of a restaurant, like the ability to have a crew that listens and respects you, the ability to like order food on time and like work with people. Like, I think you have to know about and love food, but I don't know what he knows about. Like, I mean, obviously he's great at making food. But I think like what it takes to be a great executive chef in a restaurant is very different than what it would take to be like a great personal chef. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And that's why a home cook can't be a chef because there is like the business aspect of it. And you're working with so many insane people all the time that it's so much like human resources mixed with like merchandising. Like I do think that what it takes to like run a kitchen, being a good recipe developer is like a tiny percent of it. Yeah. So then he graduates the CIA. I had field experience, a vocabulary, and a criminal mind. I was a danger to myself and others. He's... What what does he think chefing is? Also, he talks about like that teacher who yelled at everybody. He's like, even the women he would make cry. He treated us all the same. I will say it's very 2000. It's very pre, 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 pre me too. And that he's like, the women who could hack it in this sexist, horrible environment. I loved working with them because he passed for what was like very progressive at the time being like, I love it when a woman can stick out all the sexual harassment because that means she's like tougher than the rest of us. And I am like, have you ever considered, though, that why it would be even harder for a woman to handle the fact that, like, everybody is, like, joking about raping each other when she's the one who might actually get raped? I don't think he's ever considered that one. There is, like, this real sense of being a woman in the kitchen is harder because there's more sensitive and not because, like, the actual threats that they're making to you as a joke are threats that could happen to her for real. And, like, might. So then he goes back to Mario's after he's graduated the CIA. Or this is, sorry, this is between his two years at the CIA. He goes back there. Now he's got some professional cooking experience. They used to call him mal carne, which means bad meats. And now he's back there ready to prove himself. And he, like, I guess does. He meets this guy, Dimitri, who he works with for years and years and years, who he has so much respect for. Like me, he was a born snob, so it was only natural that when our lord and master Mario decided on two employees to cater his annual garden party, he selected his two would-be escoffiers, the Dimitri and Tony show. So they spend the whole summer doing these little, like, one-off catering businesses where they're trying to do more and more and more outlandish shit. They make, like, a coliseum out of seafood stew. Yeah, and, like, bread bowl, I think. Dimitri is obsessed with creating, like, real live-action sceneries out of food. He would love the floral focaccia trend. Yeah. And he's like, we were insane and all hopped up on Coke and always coming up with ideas that were just like bananas. But we'd be up for 36 straight hours being like, we have to create this exact replica of Apocalypse Now out of pasta. They often succeeded. But often they failed. <laughs> <laughs> all the while, I filled Dimitri's head with the idea that what we were doing here, we could do back in New York only bigger and better. Ah, those heady days of happy delusions, spirited arguments, and grandiose streams of glory and riches. We did not aspire to be the new Bacchuses. No, that wasn't enough. Jacked up on the Coke and vodka, we wanted nothing less than to be like Kerem, whose enormous pièce montées married the concepts of architecture and food. And then he moves to NYC. So now we get into who's cooking. In a chapter I like to call Who Cooks. And I like to call it that because that's what he called it first. Yeah. So who's cooking your food anyway? Line cooking. The real business of preparing the food you eat is more about consistency, about mindless, unvarying repetition, the same series of tasks performed over and over and over again in exactly the same way. The last thing a chef wants in a line cook is an innovator, somebody with ideas of his own who is going to mess around with the chef's recipes and presentations. So he talks about the way Americans are dreamers. They want upward mobility, whereas other immigrants are grateful to have a job and so they're better line cooks. 
to me, it feels very similar to like the women thing where I'm like, you think that these people are like harder workers and like better at executing your vision because they need job security more. Like that, you know what I mean? I don't think he considers why these things are the way they are in any real way. A guy who's come up through our ranks, who knows every station, every recipe, every corner of the restaurant, who has learned first and foremost, your system above all others is likely to be more valuable and long-term than some bedwetting white boy whose mom brought him up thinking the world owed him a living and who thinks he actually knows a few things. He talks a lot about how true loyalty from your line cook is somebody who will come in when they're sick. And I, as somebody who eats food and is currently sick, I'm just like, Ugh. I'd actually love if they did it. I know. I think that that was like a really interesting thing that happened during COVID was when people said, oh, if you're sick, you just shouldn't be around people. Like wear a mask when you have the sniffles, not just if you have COVID. The thing about this book that I think is fun to read but isn't great for the podcast is that it is like a book written by a writer. Mm -hmm. He is someone who is a great writer who also has extreme knowledge about a certain interesting topic and he can make it more interesting. That being said, I feel like recounting what's in here is not that interesting. Yeah. Like he has this whole chapter about like, and what matters to a line cook? Mise en place. That's where you get everything prepared and they love specific pans and don't get between a line cook and his wet towel. <laughs> You're reading it and it, it, it's exciting because the way he writes is exciting and it's passionate and it's... He writes about the way that these line cooks are so excited about like fresh linens delivery day and they all steal and like hoard the towels and they hide them in the ceilings and they hide them in the floors and, and I'm like, oh, that's so fun. And But, you know, telling it to you guys, I don't know that it's that fun. So who the hell exactly are these guys? The boys and girls in the trenches, you might get the impression from the specifics of my less than stellar career that all line cooks are whacked out moral degenerates. Dope fiends, refugees, a thuggish assortment of drunks, sneak thieves, sluts, and psychopaths. You wouldn't be too far off. Something that I think is interesting that I wish she was still around so I could ask him about is he talks specifically about how cooking is a craft, I like to think, and the good cook is a craftsman, not an artist. There's nothing wrong with that. The great cathedrals of Europe were built by craftsmen, though not designed by them. Practicing your craft in expert fashion is noble, honorable, and satisfying. I wonder if he considers a chef an artist. Yeah. I will say one thing that I think is very interesting about him is that reading the book, love him, but discussing the book, I'm like suspicious. Yeah. I think it was like progressive for 2000. I think it has to do with his charm. Mm -hmm. He has this way of being self-deprecating in a quick manner of fact way where then you don't go into it. And he's like calling out all ethnicities of people, but it's true because he's like working with all these ethnicities of people, but he's never looking at the top line of what's going on. So he talks a lot about how He'd rather the Ecuadorian line cook than the American guy who just got out of culinary school because that guy is going to have all these ideas. But like the Ecuadorian guy is going to come in and show up to work even when he's sick, even when he's hungover, like he's going to be loyal to his core. And he like uses it to be like, hey, those like guys from South America, that's way better what you want in your kitchen. And I'm like, well, maybe it's because, you know, of socioeconomic opportunities. Yeah. And like the safety nets provided to like white Americans versus immigrants in this country. <laughs> I wonder what sets apart like an aspiring chef who you want to bring under your wing and train and like a aspiring chef who you want to kick. And of course, it's like humility and will like being willing to cut your teeth and all those things. But like, I still don't feel like he really cut his teeth for that long. So that's the problem with this book, because there's no like personal context, like the memoir parts that are missing. It's hard to tell who he is. Like what set him apart as someone who we now revere as a great chef and like a great food person? 
even though he speaks like a little bit highly of himself, I don't think he zeroes in on like what it is that he has talent at. Like I'm like, does he just appreciate food good? Is it because he just stuck it out? And if you can survive long enough, eventually it'll work. Yeah. I just don't know. There's no context for his personal experiences. So then the next chapter is the one that really set the world ablaze. I wonder if this is like why the book went viral, where he just talks about how fucking disgusting kitchens are. Yeah. When I say viral, I mean like that became a bestseller, which is paper viral. 2000 viral. Y2K viral. I never order fish on a Monday unless I'm eating at Le Bernardin. Basically, all fish is ordered Thursday. So if you're eating it on a Monday, it's leftover. Any like special, that's a Monday, Tuesday special, that's like a seafood salad. Don't eat that shit. It's just old fish. Brunch menus are pretty much just garbage from Friday and Saturday. I wonder how much this has changed because I don't feel like brunch used to be like the destination that it is now. I was thinking about how I went to this place called Breakfast by Salt's Cure and I'm like, surely they don't even do dinner. That's definitely not leftover dinner. That started as breakfast. Yeah. I feel like now there are restaurants that you go to as like a brunch restaurant. Even if they're open for dinner, you're like, well, I'm here for the brunch menu as Clinton opposed Street to- baking. Exactly. Hit me up for my breakdown of New York City pancakes. I have one place to try left, Taunt Mama or something. Shaitan. Oh my God. You have to go to this restaurant that I went to that I hated, but the pancake was the best pancake. Should I've ever I become had in my a life. pancake connoisseur? Yes. Because unfortunately, I do think Clinton Street Baking has the best pancake in New York. It's really good. Anyway, so he talks about the brunch menu. He says bacteria thrives in Hollandaise don't sauce. Don't say that to me. I love a Hollandaise and I won't hear it. I luckily don't. So I feel good about this. He says all of the bread that you're eating in a restaurant is like being brought back to the kitchen and then brought back out. And he says, that's fine. You can keep eating it. And if you've been eating it, keep eating it. Can I say that's how I felt about a lot of this was like, well, this is disgusting, but I've been eating it. So I guess I'll keep eating it. 31 years and I ain't dead yet. So why not? He says don't eat discount sushi. But what would he say about grocery stores sushi? I used to work at a restaurant with a really bread basket-y kind of culture. There was a lot of good breads there that they made by hand. And I would just like... Stick my hands in those breads. Oh, I was eating so much free bread. <laughs> Saving for well done. Basically, if you order your steak well done, they're taking the worst piece in the pile that they've been just sitting on for days and then like broiling it to a crisp and being like, you piece of shit. You don't even know what good meat is. Okay, this is like the craziest part. Of- okay, so you guys know I've been dabbling in not really eating meat anymore. Call it what it is. Pescatarianism. Give yourself a label. I mean, I'm not fully. I'm not 100%, but I've really been... You've been trying stronger than I would have guessed. Thank you. You've been trying stronger than like previous attempts. So he just goes in on vegetarians and how much he hates them and affront to the pure enjoyment of food. And he's like, the body these waterheads imagine is a temple that should not be polluted by animal protein. It's healthier, they insist. Can I say that's actually not why I stopped eating meat at all? It's because I think that bug reminds me of a little pig. And so I literally had to stop. But then he goes on to explain like how disgusting most of the meats are that you get at restaurants. And I was like, well, this didn't undo what you just said. Yeah. He's like, you think pigs are disgusting? You should see chickens. They're repulsive. He says, don't ever eat mussels. They're sitting in their own piss. (laughs) And I was like, did mussels pee? He says, it's cooler to eat during the week than on the weekend. I have no wish to die, nor do I have some unhealthy fondness for dysentery. If I know you're storing your squid at room temperature next to a cat box, I'll eat my squid down the street. Thank you very much. I will continue to do my seafood eating on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays because I know better, because I can wait. But if I have one chance at a full-blown dinner of blowfish gizzard, even if I have not been properly introduced to the chef and I'm in a strange Far Eastern city and my plane leaves tomorrow, I'm going for it. You only go around once. 
I really am glad that I don't know that much about food and cooking. Because this whole thing, like, where he just knows too much and he's like, there are certain foods you just can't eat unless the chef is your friend. I'm like, oh, that's a lot. I agree. I love a little luxury in life, okay? But that does not mean I can always afford it until I discovered Quince. Quince is my go-to for luxury essentials at affordable prices. Quince offers a range of high-quality items at prices within reach, like a 100% Mongolian cashmere sweater from $50, washable silk tops and dresses, organic cotton sweaters, and 14-karat gold jewelry. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because Quince partners directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Quince also only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I have the most incredible sweater from Quince and a duvet cover set with pillowcases and everything. And I, let me tell you, I love the color of the duvet cover. I love the feel of it. I am such a linen bedding girl. I'm so happy to have this blue. It's like the most gorgeous blue that I feel like makes my room look bright and happy, but it's also just like warm and comfortable and like breathable. It's just a a great linen duvet set. I also have a sweater that I reach for so frequently. It's just the perfect staple to have in your closet whenever I don't know what to wear. I'm trying to dress sharp, but comfortable. Like I want to look put together, but I need to be comfortable at all times. Otherwise, I don't know. I can't breathe. So wearing just like a great soft sweater is actually the key to putting it all together. Give yourself the luxury you deserve with Quince. Go to quince.com slash worm for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash worm to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash worm. Okay, so then he has a how to cook like the pros and basically it's just like get a squeezy bottle, use a lot more butter than you think, use shallots. Knives that are special, dude. I should get a nice knife. He says you only need one knife. It's a chef's knife. I only have one knife and it's a knife that was for free in the first apartment that I moved to in New York. A nonstick saute pan, a heavyweight saucing pan. He says if it, if it can't bash someone's skull in, it's no good. This book did make me want to cook stuff. Chiffonaded parcelet. I don't know what that means. Owner syndrome and other medical anomalies. This is about all the idiot people who think they should be owners. Basically, owning a restaurant is kind of a way to have a failed business, but there are restaurants that are successful for like a while. Like, you actually, the only restaurant I feel like he mentions in this book that I know of was Gramercy Tavern. Yeah. Everything else I think is gone or irrelevant. I think I've heard of Indigo. Is it still around? I might be thinking of something else. Okay. Then he like goes through what happens as a restaurant is failing, the inevitable. You start trying out like funky, flashy ideas. You start experimenting. You hire a publicist. You try to get some good reviews in and then you just kind of spiral down the drain. And then he gets into the restaurant owner that was important to him and he calls him Bigfoot. He started working for Bigfoot during the summers when he was in the CIA. Bigfoot is the most stand-up guy he ever worked for. He inspires a strange and consuming loyalty. I try in my kitchen to be just like him. I want my cooks to have me inside their heads like Bigfoot remains in mine. I love the way he's like, actually, I don't want to change things from the most toxic experience I've ever experienced. I want things to be more like that. It's so stand-up-y to me. I'm like, if you haven't like cried on the wet floor of the creek in the cave, I actually don't think you deserve a special. I worked for Bigfoot part-time while I attended CIA, and years later, over 10 years later, I washed up onto his shores again. It was a low point in my career. I was burnt out from my five-year run in the restaurant Netherworld as a not-very-good chef, in rehab for heroin, still doing cocaine, broke, and reduced to working brunches at ridiculous mom-and-pop restaurants in Soho, 
where they serve lion, tiger, and hippopotamus, brachioli, and other dead zoo animals. Eesh. I was determined never to be a chef again, sickened by the, my last gargantuan operation. So he goes in for an interview and he says, hey, can you spot me 20 bucks? I don't have any money. He ends up giving him $200. And then he's like, so he comes back in the next morning and he goes, if he had given me the 25 instead of 200, that might have happened. I might have gone out and just gotten heroin and never come back. But as so often happens with Bigfoot, his trust was rewarded. I was so shaken by his baseless trust in me that such a cynical bastard as Bigfoot would make such a gesture that I determined I'd sooner gnaw my own fingers off, gouge my eyes out with a shellfish fork, and run naked down 7th Avenue than ever betray that trust. So because of Bigfoot, that's where he learned all of his best kitchen habits. That's why he wakes up at 5 minutes to 6 a.m. every single day without an alarm clock. It's why he has a very like militant organization of the kitchen. From here on out, this book is just like chapters of love letters and odes to different individuals and aspects of the kitchen world that I think would be really sweet and fun if you spread them out. It was a lot to read back to back to back. It was a lot of just like this restaurant and here and there, and but it wasn't very plot driven. So it was hard to keep track of what you're doing. And I had fun reading about this guy, Bigfoot, and all of his quirks and the way, you know, you I think everybody loves that guy, the guy who's such an asshole and so specific, but you can't get one over on him and he'll have your back if you have his. I feel like everybody loves that type of boss. Yeah. I will say a book of love letters is a long book. It is interesting. Like, I think that if you're into restaurants, if you're into like people's stories, like you're walking down the street and you're like, what's that guy's story? Like, these are good stories. It just doesn't give you Anthony's story really at all. And I am very curious about that. So he talks about a kitchen where the, everyone was like super sexually harassy. And this guy like loved to credit card him, you know, where you like swipe a swipe a hand up the rear. I don't like that. Okay. Well, that's what we called it when I was young. I'm not saying I don't like the name. I don't like the action. I don't like the action one bit. I'm thinking about that right now and I wouldn't like it. No. And so this guy would always credit card him and it got like way, way, way. That's not what he calls it in the book, by the way. But it got like very handsy. And so... One day he just turns around and smashes this guy's hand with a meat fork. I think he might have crushed a bone. And then the guy never did that again. And he had a lot of respect in the kitchen. And I was like, is it no desire to change one thing about the industry? <laughs> this is when he was working at the Rainbow Room. And again, this is my sense that there was no good food prior to 30 years ago. Rainbow Room is like one of the most famous rooms in New York City. It's at the top of the Rockefeller Center. He's working the lunch shift for all of these executives who run the world down below that pay a special fee to get to eat alone in this Rainbow Room. And lunch is like leftovers from last night. The food is all being prepared and sitting under hot lights and zhuzhed up with sauce. Like his job is to make the leftover food from last night look appetizing. So he would just like cut it into a fun shape and pour some sauce on it. Everything was covered in sauce. At one point, he's there for about a year and people are like, why don't you become our union rep? Because they were rep by a union. And he goes there and he meets an Italian guy. And he's like, can I see the charter of our union? And he's like, I've lost it. I've misplaced it. And a couple of conversations were had in the corners. And they like ask Anthony to take a step back. And he realized that it's all mob run anyway. So there's no way to like change anything for anyone. They were having him do lunch. And then they would ask him to stay on for dinner. So he would get in every morning at 7.30 a.m. And then stay till midnight. And he was like, finally, after a couple of weeks of it, back to back, working seven days like that a week, he was like, could I please see my girlfriend? And the guy goes, no. I never see my wife and we're so happy. And then his wife jumped out a window 10 years later. Jumped out a window. So he goes, how happy could she have been? But also, this is the first mention of a girl. I was like, girlfriend? When did you have time for a girlfriend? You were working. Oh, I meant to say with that Bigfoot thing. I forgot to say it. But I was like, you went to rehab and got out clean and sober from heroin. Still doing cocaine. When? 
1981, his friend gets the job at Work Progress, which I guess was a hot restaurant in 1981. Unfortunately, I was born in 1992, so I'm not familiar. <laughs> the legend did not last. So he and his buddies are in charge of this restaurant. So he's the sous chef. And it's like all these young guns kind of in charge thinking they've cut their teeth in the kitchens and so they know what's up. So he's 22 years old. He's maybe 21 because this is his last job before he's 22. He says, we were forming like a rock and roll band, an all-star group of culinary superstars, kind of like Blind Faith. We were going to tear a new asshole to the New York restaurant scene. And so they go in thinking that they're creating like the next great thing in restaurants. But they're all just like such drug addicts and assholes that it like nosedives pretty quickly. So he brings in all his friends. And then, of course, it's nosediving. And his cousin had hooked him up with his very first chef job at a brand spanking new but already troubled Watt in the theater district. I felt bad about leaving my friends behind. And I had the beginnings of a very nasty little heroin habit from all the dope I'd been sniffing. But hey, I was about to become a chef. So now he's 22 years old and the chef of a new theater district restaurant. That is crazy. So he's at this place called Tom H. Just these two gay guys. The gossipy, self-effacing, and overtly queer atmosphere was not only fun, but in many ways completely in line with the gossipy, self-effacing, and overtly depraved world of chefs and cooks. So he's also really close to 9th Ave, which is where he gets heroin. So it's like a really great job for him. Unfortunately, it turns out you can't run a restaurant based off the idea that you throw great dinner parties. People don't understand how expensive it is. They had bought an entire townhouse, which I guess probably returned its value by now. They were going to live in one floor. They had a, another floor for hanging. I don't know. They just had this dream that it'd be this homey hang that everybody would come to. But the particular difficulty of having a theater district restaurant is you only get one wave of customers. Yeah, because you only come for before the theater and then like maybe for a drink after the theater. But from like 7 p.m. until 10 p.m., every restaurant is completely empty. So it shuts down pretty quickly and he ditches and he gets another shitty chef job. He says, my problem was the money. I was making too much of it. Instead of doing the smart thing, taking a massive pay cut to go work for one of the now numerous emerging stars of American cooking, I continued my trajectory working for a series of knuckle-headed wacko one-lung operations. I chased the money. I was hooked on a chef-sized paycheck and increasing dosages of heroin. Can I say another thing that I think is never made clear to me is when did he like emerge successful? When did he get married? When did he go to rehab? Rehab? Who paid for rehab? How long was he there? I guess he, he did. I think he had a lot of money. I think he had a lot of money compared to being a line cook. Okay. I know at one point he asked for what he thinks is an insane amount of money. He asked for $85,000. And I think he was like in his late 20s, early 30s. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it was also like the 80s. Yeah, I guess I wonder how much rehab used to cost. I think that healthcare used to be affordable. Huh. I genuinely do not know because I also think mental health was only invented like three or four weeks but ago. But this is not mental health. This was Yeah, but health. rehab, they used to think it was just like, buck up, buddy. That's true. They used to go, you're an alcoholic? I think you're Irish. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, I diagnose you with Irish syndrome. <laughs> they didn't even know cocaine was bad for you until 2004. They thought it just made you good at business. <laughs> it still might. This is where it kind of got confusing for me because a lot of things were happening really fast and out of order and I just didn't know where anything fit in. From a pacing wise, the fact that we were at page 125 and he's like, and now I'm 22. And then later he's like, anyway, I'm 37 now. I already wrote two books. I've got a wife and I'm the head of the biggest New York City restaurant. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What there. happened in those 13 years? You didn't even tell me about them. So in the 80s, he gets a new job in Baltimore, which was like, why? 
some real mobsters opening up restaurants left, right, and center. I'm desperate to know what restaurants. It sounds like there were hits all over the place. They sounded like Rayos or something. Yeah. But they were like Upper East Side, Lower East Side. You got cafes, gelaterias, pizzerias. And then he opened some giant place in New York. And then he goes, I'm opening like a two kitchen, 400 top restaurant in Baltimore. And one must say why. First, they send him to the restaurant up in the Upper East Side. They go, we think we need a chef up there. The guy goes, no, I'm the chef here. So they go, oh, go to Baltimore. So he goes to Baltimore. He has room and board, too. And then he doesn't work there that long. He sends his friend Dimitri and he goes, hey, there's a job for you down here. And then he like kind of splits. So this friend Dimitri he had met in Provincetown and he's the one he convinced to move to New York City with him. And then every time Anthony jumped jobs, he brought Dimitri with. And interestingly enough, by the end of the book, he goes, Dimitri won't take my phone calls anymore. I think he's too afraid of the lure of the nightlife. The opportunity that awaits at the other end of this call. What is it like to have known you? And another time he was like, I remember being in a cab full of heroin addicts thinking only one in four of us will survive. And I thought, it's got to be me. You guys could die, but I'm going to live. And that's what happened. And I was just like, Anthony, you're so charming. And I love you. But what is it like to know you on a personal level? I think he's just like... A tall, Drink handsome white man with like an assuring deep voice. And so he can say whatever. Like, I don't know when you're like, what? You're saying something crazy. And and he keeps being like, I was just a fucked up sex fiend with a dope addiction and a great head of hair. And I'm just like. <laughs> Who loved chiffonading. <laughs> and I'm just like. But you're silly. And I'm like, he keeps telling us who he is. And I keep being like, but you're my friend. <laughs> you love duck. You love creme brulee. How about that oyster, man? He loves a team of undocumented people who cannot take a day off. <laughs> I was fucked up, living fast, riding large. And I'm like, Exploiting. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> At one point, he becomes known as, like, the firing guy, and he's like, I can't work here anymore. I'm too Oh, yeah, so the mobster finally moves him to a different New York City restaurant where he, because they were so bloated as a company and mob run, there was, like, one guy who was going by three different names and getting everybody paid. They had hired his Coke dealer to just, like, sit in the kitchen, and he would just go in and fire everybody, and they loved that about him. He became the hatchet man, and then he couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take ruining these people's lives. I slept for three weeks. When I woke up, I was determined never to be a chef again. I'd cook. I had to make money, but I would never again be the leader of men. At one point, he talks about this job interview that he went to. It was like a classic steak restaurant. And he was like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want right now. Just making good, simple foods. And he sits down and he's like knocking this interview out of the park. And then the interviewer, the owner goes, so what do you know about me? And he's like, nothing at all. I don't know. And then... The guy was like, all right, well, we've got to interview other people. And he's walking down the street and he's like, why did that interview turn sour so fast? What a fucking narcissist. And then he goes, oh, he said, what do you know about meat? And I said, nothing. (laughs) And it was a steakhouse. I mean, at this point, he calls this the wilderness years. And he said, I worked a seedy hotel in Upper Madison. I was the lone cook. My only companions, a hotel super and a grumpy dishwasher. He worked at a lunch counter flipping pancakes. I was doing shorter eggs. I began working bizarre combination art gallery bistro. He was just like doing whatever the fuck. I worked yeah. at a crab house, steaming blue crabs. So what was going on here? Where was his wife pre or post rehab? I don't know. I think his journey like gets back on track when he works with this guy, Pino Luongo, the owner of Coco Pazzo. Dude, and can I say in that meat chapter, he's talking about what a dead end life he was living. He's talking about this Christmas tree that it was October and it was all dead, but he was too embarrassed to put it out in the dumpster. 
Eventually, my wife and I would make a heroic effort to dispose of the incriminating object. Wife? Wife? When did you get a wife? And at that point, when he went to the meat job, he had been working in the industry for 15 years. Yeah. I mean, it really just isn't a memoir. It really is. Like Tales from the Kitchen. Yeah, a first-person account of his life through the lens of it's kitchen. It's like um, Sweet Bitter for Boys. What's that? Sweet Bitter was that book that like went viral a couple of years ago. <laughs> Sorry, I keep saying books go viral. That Stephanie Dandler book that they turned into a Showtime series about that waitress who like worked at a fancy New York restaurant. and just, Did they like, get turned into the musical Waitress? No. Huh. It was just about doing tons of cocaine as a New York waitress. And then one day you meet Sir Patrick Stewart and you get to marry him, I guess. <laughs> Throwback. <laughs> anyway, so he's working for this guy, Pino. And Pino has a great couple of kitchens. So he wants to bring him on. So this is when he takes a step back because he gets brought on as a sous chef with opportunity to be the exec chef at this next restaurant. But I will even agree with you here. They're like, we're looking for somebody to work as a sous chef. And in three weeks, we have a new restaurant opening that needs an executive chef. Yeah. So essentially, they're bringing him in for an audition to be the executive chef. Right. He didn't really take a step back. There was promise of you'll be the executive chef next month. I guess this is the stepping stone we were looking for, working under this really famous yeah. Kino Luongo. And so he calls his wife and he says, oh, I'm going to be a chef. And then you know what? He has no respect for the Italians. He fucking hates Italian food. He thinks it's beneath him. But then making the Pino Italian food, he goes, oh, my God, cooking a pasta is an art. You'll never believe the sauces. Sauce is not a cover up for shitty food. Sauce could be good food. He literally goes, they were making their own pomodoro from tomatoes. And I was like, are all restaurants not making their own sauce? He had literally never seen a restaurant use fresh ingredients before. And I was like, what? were restaurants it's like back in the day when there were just taverns for travelers to sleep piss and drink mead at i think every restaurant was just a mead station until 2006 one thing that he loves about himself is the way he would like go covert through the city and like go to restaurants and like find his old guys and be like i got an opportunity for you you leave this shitty job and you come to my shitty job and like he loves to like collect his boys yeah squad up he loves to get a band together and he talks about like stealing people from these restaurants as if people like don't have autonomy. You know what I mean? Like people made the choice to go with Anthony and I wonder why. I think he's a for the boys guy. Yeah. Max said, describe Anthony Bourdain to me in one word. And I said for the boys. Yeah. He is a guy who like between owner and line cook, he's going to take the line cook side every time. Mm-hmm. If you show up with the flu, dead mom, no paperwork, he's going to have your fucking back. Yeah. He loves watching you piss dick competition. That's where you whip your dick out in the kitchen and see how far you could piss and it's a competition. He loves... uh, He says, put a crab on your head and do a little dance. That's a prank and I live for it. He loves pranks. So at Coco Pazzo, they end up trying to demote him because things go kind of bad. And then he's like, okay, I guess I'll just quit. I will say that's another thing. He's like, the most important thing as a chef is to have your sous chef and your underlings like getting information for you all the time. And I would put out fake information just to see the line of gossip. And I was always testing everybody and gathering what I need to know just to see who was about to stab me in the back. And that was something that I was like, well, why were they mad at you? Because presumably if it was going well, they wouldn't fire you. Like, why'd you get fired? Yeah. Oh, I know he got fired. Why? He said because they had a restaurant in the basement of Barney's that closed down because of infighting between Barney's and Pino. And then like they had an entire crew of people. They were like, you don't understand Italian food. They had given him a sous chef who understood Italian food. That makes me wonder, how much is recipe development part of your job as an executive chef? 
I don't think any. They're like, we're going to hire you to lead this Italian restaurant, recognizing that you know nothing about Italian food. We're going to give you a guy who can help you make Italian meals. Great question. This next chapter, I don't think we really need to get into it all. It's a day in the life where he goes through like exactly what a day in the life looks like for him as an executive Have you ever worked hard? He's worked harder. Have you ever had to get a box of tomatoes and then you find out there's no box of tomatoes here. They left the tomatoes at home. You got to check the hood. You got to check for rats. You got to break up the infighting. Sniff your sauce. Get a little salt and a little pepper. Family meal. Get down here. He's got a waiter that's never heard of prosciutto. Prosciutto. He's got to explain what Vichyssoise Livernaise is. I don't know what Livernaise is. That's why I don't work for Anthony B. And then at midnight, you and the boys, you go across the street, you get a beer, you talk a shop. You want to go to bed? You say I could go home to my wife, but I get a drink set cost right over here. Yeah. And then you wake up, you do it again tomorrow. So then he writes a love letter to his sous chef, who now has their own restaurant. What a dream. What a gorge. Steven, down in Florida. If you're ever in Florida, look him up. Basically, he was a fuck up. And then one day, Anthony said, I see something in you. And he became so loyal, so gossip oriented. He just gets, you don't have to come in and say, did this get done? He got it done. This next chunk, he just kind of writes odes to everybody in his life. I think the funnest ode was Adam Last Name Unknown, which is like just the greatest bread baker in all the land. He talks about how he loves the talk of the kitchen and which is, as I said, just calling each other gay, (laughs) comparing dick sizes, saying who fucked whose mom. Saying who 86 whose dick. (laughs) Is that a penis or are your pennies happy to see me? (laughs) And then you want to know who else works at a restaurant? A food runner. Totally. They take the food to the tables. And they got to be quick. He likes them wide set and speedy. He likes them low to the ground, a low rider. And then a night porter, that's the person who cleans up at night. And then the bartender, that's the person who gives you alcohol. And then, yeah, he knows this guy named Adam, last, real last name unknown. We looked it up. It's like Irving or something. Yeah. Idris. Yes. <laughs> Adam Idris. He like makes really good bread. But he's a psychopath. And sometimes he doesn't come to work. And he'll like sue your ass. But in four years, you'll go, if I don't get a fucking piece of that sourdough from that godlike Adam, I'm shutting down the restaurant. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then he has a friend who fires somebody. And the guy he fired killed himself and he felt really bad about it. And this was a chapter I wasn't really sure what he was saying because like, you know, everyone tried to make my friend feel better and I try to make him feel better and said, what are you supposed to have this guy who doesn't work? Like, it's not your fault. But he goes, it was his fault. It's your job to take care of everybody in your industry. And I have a lot of guys I've just let hang on without firing because I didn't know what they would do. Their lives are in my hands. And I was kind of like, this didn't really take a turn for where I thought it was going to go. Me either. He writes an ode to Scott Bryan, who made Indigo, which was like a really great restaurant. And Veritas and something else called like Aria or something. Yeah, Scott was like so innovative and awesome. And his kitchens were very calm and nice. I liked this chapter because this was very much like the whole book was like, here's how every kitchen in the world is. We're all yelling dick fart. We're all cutting each other up with knives. We're all playing pranks. And he goes, well, that's not true. Scott Bryan, they're very calm. The calmer they are, the faster they go. They're respectful. He works hard. He's beautiful. And he goes, randos can never run a restaurant. He goes, but Scott Bryan's partner is a rando. So he's like, everything I said, it's not even true. Because look at this guy. (laughs) And I kind of like like that way of being like, this is true everywhere. But not really. Yeah. Now he's an executive chef at Le Hal. The Hallis? How do you? I'm going to spell it. L-E-S-H-A-L-L-E-S. Le Hallies. And so they send him to their restaurant in Tokyo to work with the Tokyo group. 
and kind of like learn things and teach them things. And he is so blown away by Tokyo and the food there. He can't believe that his teacher at the CIA was wrong. Japanese food's actually good. <laughs> so you want to be a chef at commencement address. Okay. It's a listicle. Why not just let your book be 287 pages, Anthony? Don't steal. Listen, I like Anthony Bourdain, but the amount that he's like, I did it all the time, but like you literally shouldn't. He's always saying these things to be like, I don't like this in a person. I don't like that in a person. And it's like, don't you see that sometimes people have to start shitty and grow? You did all the things you say not to do, but you got to where you were in this book, a very successful chef who became a very successful TV chef. And so to be like, these are the worst things you can be. I'm like, well, maybe those are the things that you have to be to become not those things. So here's the list. You guys ready? Be fully committed. Learn Spanish. Don't steal. Always be on time. Never make excuses. Never call in sick. Lazy, sloppy, and slow are bad. Be prepared to witness every variety of human folly and injustice. Assume the worst. Try not to lie. Avoid restaurants where the owner's name is over the door. Think about that resume. Read. Have a sense of humor. And then he kind of sums it all up. He says, you know, I don't know how much longer I can do this because being a chef is physically very painful, but I fucking love it. He's like a reverse Andre Agassi. I was going to say he really reminded me of Andre Agassi and that you're like, all I'm reading about is your losses. And then somehow the way that Andre Agassi was like, lost that game, lost that game, lost that game. And suddenly I was number one in the world. And I was like, how? 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 <laughs> Anthony's just like, anyway, I was addicted to heroin. I was stabbed in the face. And then I was married and the executive chef going to Tokyo. And I was like, what? Yeah, he also goes back in the afterward and he's like, sorry, I talked so much shit about Emeril Lagasse. He's actually nice. This book is bookended with him being like, just because I'm famous doesn't mean I'm not the same guy. I love the cooks. I'm here for the cooks. He's just one of the boys. He wants to hang out with his friends and eat snacks. He wants to hang out with his employees and then take a live grasshopper and shove it up his nose. <laughs> I really liked him. I really think this is a very interesting book if you're looking for like something interesting to really hunker down with this winter. I mean, I do think it's like if you're a part of this world, you'll be like, that's my world. Yeah. And I like reading about someone who's like this passionate about a subculture. I'd love to watch this TV show. Yeah. And I, I would have loved to read like an actual memoir. Yeah. Anyway. The end. Welcome to 2024. Thank you, B182. I am so glad my eyeballs close 182 times a minute so that I can see this beautiful review on the back of my eyelids every single time. Thank you, Texas State Stars. You know, my brother lives in Texas, and I think he loves the Dallas Stars now. So in that way, me and you, Texas State Stars, are family now. Closed captions. If I could put a caption on this review, it would be hard eyes, hard eyes, hard eyes. Muggy BLS, I am so thankful to know your mug. Nats 94. I would let 94 Nats rest upon my head in gratitude for this beautiful review. O.Live to Hoop. Well, this review is a slam dunk and I love you. Abuvia, Abuvia, you are a beautiful reviewer. Thank you so much for your kind words. Jana Teach. Oh, well, you should teach a class in five star reviews because you knocked it out of the park, baby. Mark in Ohio Politics. Oh, my friend. I hope things are going okay for you, and I hope things are looking up on the five-star side soon. Hella bothered? Well, I hope that if you continue putting up five stars into this world, nothing bothers you ever again, because you don't deserve it. You deserve to be unbothered, because you're a gem. Annie5991, you are my favorite of the Parent Trap sisters, and thank you for this review. 
dog, cat, and baby mama. I cannot believe that you are a dog, cat, and baby mama, and you still had time to leave us the most beautiful five-star review. Thank you, and I hope the dog, cat, and baby are gorgeous. Zahahahara with many H's. Thank you so much for this beautiful review. I am also tripped up on your name because I am I'm letting out little sobs in between because this review is so beautiful. Wormy1734, I would squirm 1,734 miles on my worm belly to give you a kiss on the cheek. Walter White, I would sell a million pounds of meth to say thanks to you. 5MIAMIA5, you know it's not missing in action? Perfect reviews, so thank you. Bob Hash, smoke them if you got them, baby. We're living large over here, and I appreciate you.